This is the Physio Matters Podcast. I'm Tom Jessen, and today we're talking Cordate Equina Syndrome with advanced practice physiotherapist and Physio Matters Podcast team member, Rob Tyre. Rob's given a presentation recently at the Therapy Live conference about navigating the muddy waters of Cordate Equina Syndrome in primary care. The audience asked far more questions than we had time to answer after his talk, so Rob kindly agreed to address the unanswered questions on this bonus episode of the podcast. Joining us today to add her perspective is Michelle Angus. This is Michelle's first time on the podcast, so I'll tell you a bit about her. Michelle is a consultant physiotherapist working for the Complex Spinal Team in the Emergency Village of a Tertiary Spinal Referral Center at Salford Royal NHS Foundation Trust. She leads the Spinal Fracture Service and clinically leads a team of advanced practitioner physiotherapists in the emergency department, in acute orthopedics and complex spines. She is the educational lead on the executive committee of the Advanced Practice, Practice Physiotherapy Network. And Michelle is also uh, on the executive committee um, of, uh, that has drawn out the recent National Quadriquina Syndrome pathway here in the UK. Her areas of clinical research are around advanced practice in physiotherapy, clinical frailty, and Quadriquina Syndrome. And we're very grateful to have her on the show. As a quick point before we start, today's episode is not intended to be an introductory or comprehensive talk on CES. If that's what you're after, I would refer you to Chris Mercer's podcast on CES, which he recorded with us last year. Today is an opportunity to really get stuck into some of the trickier topics and hear the perspective of these two experienced, knowledgeable, and thoughtful clinicians. Michelle and Rob, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom. Happy to be here. And what we're going to do is start off with the most popular question that was asked of Rob. And the question is that the biggest issue people have uh, for quadriquina syndrome is when they refer someone and the emergency department uh, doesn't do the investigation or the exam that they expect. Um, and so maybe the patient comes back, but you don't feel that they've been worked up properly or maybe it hasn't been taken seriously People are worried about, well, whose risk is that? What do they do then? How can they best take on that patient's care after that point? And I wonder if you could just start off, Rob, with the perspective from primary care. What would you do about that? Um, so hopefully it's um, similar to the, the previous answer I gave. So uh, not to, to confuse the matter any further, but I think there's a couple of parts of that question. One of them is whose responsibility is that? So in, for me, it would be it's, it's my responsibility. So if that person hasn't had the investigation or at least um, a confirmed diagnosis, alternative diagnosis, then it's, it's, the, it's the responsibility of the referring clinician to make sure that person's care is complete until your duty of care can be handed over. There will be some responsibility for the investigating clinician in the emergency department, but it's not binary. There will be, you know, we still have to maintain responsibility. Some of the, some of the things that I think um, reduce the likelihood of your referral getting quote-unquote bounced or maybe not necessarily having the investigation of choice would be a, a good quality letter. So it doesn't have to be war and peace, but a couple of bullet points um, on each red flag that is present and the reasons why you cannot exclude your suspected diagnosis of cord equina in primary care. And being as, as blunt as that, it's for these reasons I believe this person uh, should require would require medical uh, opinion as I cannot exclude exclude cord equina 
uh, syndrome in the community, I've referred to A&E as per the locally agreed pathway, if that is your locally agreed pathway. Um, just spitballing as some of the reasons why you, you might have somebody who doesn't have the examination or investigation. Uh, one of them is maybe your letter hasn't reached the person that it's intended to reach. So um, the base, basically that clinician who sees that patient is dealing with someone who's like, I've just turned up because a physio told me to come to A&E and I've got a bad back. And th there is that lack of communication. So a letter and or a telephone call is pretty useful, plus taking the name of the person you spoke to so you can hand over. Uh, we organise a, a, a telephone call um, the, the day after that person's gone to A&E so we can make sure that that, that that loop has been closed. And in fact, we've had someone very, very recently who um, we've had to do that for over a weekend um, without going into too much detail. Somewhere in the country, I've had to deal with a case um, who had 20 minutes worth of symptoms with a recently confirmed compression. But at the time of compression, he didn't have any symptoms. We called up um, and basically said, I've got these new symptoms. I've had them for 20 minutes. What do I do? And so I referred him to A&E, to the neurosurgeon after calling the neurosurgeon. He was decompressed the next day. This is very recently. So it's probably my own personal record of the lowest amount of time spent with symptoms before con converting to a decompression. The other thing is, is got to be mindful of when somebody goes into the A&E department, so does everybody else. So there may be an RTA. Um, there may be somebody who's having a stroke or an MI. Um, and so it might be all hands on deck. And unfortunately, that means that you don't get seen to straight away. Um, and then there may be a handover because the staff who've been dealing with that RTA have left for the shift and then the new staff come in. So there's, there's all sorts of points of hesitate to use the word failure but points where some somebody could drop the ball but i think to mitigate that a good quality clinically reasoned letter clear communication and then some fail safe device whereby you you follow the patient up should mitigate that and i wonder what your perspective is michelle from secondary care so um I think that the local pathway, like Rob said, absolutely needs to be clear. And that's something that it's really important for clinicians to go and sort out today, not when they've got a quadriguana syndrome patient on their, their doorstep. Um, and that local pathway doesn't necessarily need to involve A&E. Rob talked there about referring to a neurosurgical on-call service. Absolutely. If you can speak to the, your local orthopaedics or neurosurgical team, whoever you is in your pathway, that patient can be met in ED by the right person. Um, if you're just sending them to ED without any communication with anyone, chances are that patient will, like Rob said, be put in, a, 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 for want of a better word, a pile of patients. Um, most, certainly in our ED, the senior clinicians are, are often looking after the resource patients. So they're dealing with, like Rob said, brain injuries, stroke, major trauma, that type of thing. Um, and the, the back pains, unless they go to triage saying, I have X, Y, and Z, they will often go to the, not the sort of majors area, they'll go to the, the uh, more minors area that's often staffed by more junior clinicians. As most of these patients are relatively safe, if you like, um, we use something, the triage nurses will look at um, triaging people that use a colour coding system. So red is somebody who's got a compromised airway or, you know, th those kind of things. Amber, sometimes back pains can be classified as amber because they of the severity of their pain or if they have progressive neurology. 
Now on triage, your triage nurse is, is doing a quick two minute, what's wrong with you and, and deciding which place that patient goes. Unless that patient comes with, either shows their letter, like Rob says, they may not do, or explains that they have progressive neurology, they potentially will be triaged as a, as a normal weight. Now we know that there's a four hour standard in ED in, in England, but we also know that EDs are struggling and they're struggling to get through the numbers that come. We know Morley did a paper in 2018 that showed that the more crowded the emergency department is, the more chance of mortality, increased length of stay, um, the poor patient experience, poor staff experience. We, we know that that's not an ideal scenario. So if your patient goes into that pile of, of patients coming to the emergency department, they could see anyone. Um, my team absolutely see a lot of the back pains, but um, you know we can't see every single patient that comes in in a day. So you may see a junior doctor who has absolutely no MSK experience. You may be far more experienced in that field than that, that junior doctor is. And they might not, you know, we're, we're talking a, a very rare condition. Absolutely, they should have an awareness but they may not do. And unless they go and discuss that case with a senior, the, the examination that patient gets is probably far less than the examination you gave in primary care. Um, so I, I feel that local pathways should ne shouldn't necessarily be straight to A&E. It should be, right, I'm gonna, who's the receiving team? Is it orthopedics? Is it neurosurgery? That's who I'm going to make a call to. And then when that patient gets a triage, they say, I'm prearranged for orthopedics or I'm prearranged for neurosurgery. And the right message, you, you've seen a senior clinician from the right team, rather than going into the, the, the pile of ED patients, that, that it's, it's hard and it's, it's difficult. Um, the other option would be to get a scan in primary care. And you know, same day scanning is, is coming more and more. Um, certainly our interface service, we would get a scan from primary care on the day. Um, so it's, it's about looking at your pathways and looking at getting the right people around the table. I think if absolutely, if your ED wants to receive them, that's fine. But you should have had that discussion with the clinical director of ED to agree that that is your pathway. Um, and if you've got radiology and orthopedics and a senior manager around the table, the senior manager may well say, actually, ED isn't where we want these patients to go. It's not big numbers, but we want them to go to the right place. Um, so, yeah, absolutely, patients are going to come to ED and not necessarily get imaging that, that they need. Um, Arkem released a position statement in February about Gordoquina syndrome, um, and they latching onto the GERF report from um, last year, which talks about local imaging. And Arkem very much feel that orthopedics should be taking responsibility for these patients. So they're working hard to push other areas to, to help support them because they, they realise that they're drowning. Um, so yeah, I, I agree with everything that Rob said, and I think that it's really important that you're comprehensive in what you do. But I think equally, now's the time to look at alternative pathways, um, because it's especially with the situation at the minute where they could be next to a respiratory patient and in the waiting room, it's you know, is that what you, is best for your patient? And I think uh, Dermot Ferguson, one of the recent national back pain pathway lectures or webinars use the analogy if you knew you were uh, going to have a baby in nine months you would have kind of worked out how that's going to happen you know, what hospital you're going to who you're going to see how you're going to get there and so on and i think that's something you've been involved with 
um, quite closely in the last few years at Connect, isn't it, Rob? Is making those connections um, and making Not with sure. Not with tender units. No, <laughs> with um, with spinal uh, for spinal patients. And so, does that kind of um, resonate with you? What Michelle's saying? Definitely. Um, there's this electronic system that's been rolled out across certain um, certain departments. Uh, it exists in some parts of the northeast uh, that I'm aware of. Uh, I'm not quite sure whether it's a, a national strategy or not, but it's called referapatient.org, um, whereby you insert all of the appropriate level information and you kind of, it's like the advice and guidance system that the GPs have access to, but it's almost like an instant messenger with a, an appropriately trained con- um, level medic. So you select your hospital from that area and select the specialty that you want to run this by somebody um and and a letter is automatically generated there's a paper trail in inverted commas um so think things like that are coming um and certainly think things are changing all of the time uh, and hopefully things are going to change for the better with the release of these new guidelines um from from michelle and, and her team that, that have put together a sterling piece of work I think the other thing as well that um, I know that Connect have done is, is it's the senior disc discussion. So if you're a less experienced clinician that's seen this patient, before you go firing them off somewhere, it's having that on-call service where you can discuss it with a senior decision maker within your own field um, prior to just saying, yeah, go to A&E. It's having that conversation. We certainly do that. And I know that Andrew Gough at the CES day told us that that's something that Connect have done, which I think is absolutely the right thing to do. 100%. Thanks for having better knowledge and better acuity to bring that up compared to me who works for the service and is actually on that list. Um, So yeah, um, certainly since having having, uh, the baptism of fire being put on the list of people who um, you can call, uh, to discuss a potential serious diagnosis, and and even it, it extends beyond just cord equina as well. Like you know, if you if you're really struggling, and you can't find local support for whatever reason. You're doing late work and or, or whatnot. Somebody will pick up the phone, and it and it is the it is basically something that forms the crux of the poster presentation, the Rapid Five that I had recently accepted for the Physio UK conference, and it does talk about prior to the existence of that on call service, um, and then after the existence of that. And and sort of the potential, I know I know it shouldn't boil down to pounds and pence, but the potential cost savings because of inappropriate referrals to A and E. Um, interestingly enough, you know that the diagnostic rate didn't go up, but the appropriateness of the referrals did, and the appropriate and those who got imaging went up. So so we sent fewer people, and those who were sent, more of them got imaged. So it's a bit of a no-brainer. I agree. And that's something that we do as well. Um, our juniors have access to a consultant physio that they can contact if need be. So absolutely, it's the right thing to do, I think. And will you then sort of debrief, um, Rob, with clinicians who have been involved with that referral afterwards? Uh, usually, it, it depends on how, how flustered they are. So um, as to when when I'm going to debrief them. So I, it went from a stage of me kind of pulling a trigger and going yeah or nay. And it, and it should never be like that. But that was because I was equally flustered. Um, and then the more comfortable I got in that role, um, the more conversational it became. Um, so, Tom, tell me what options are available to you right now with this person who's presenting with these symptoms. What, what could we do with this person? And then walking them through. And ultimately, it's their responsibility to make the decision because they're the ones speaking or seeing the patient. Um, and so that, that that's something that's really important because... Now, I, the reasons are unclear, but, but what happens is 
people who would usually ring up now sort of stop ringing up as much. And that's either because they don't want to have the hand held and walk through clinical reason, they'll just go and speak to someone who gives them the answer, or they're becoming more comfortable in uncertainty and making those difficult decisions on their own, um, and therefore improving their clinical reason. I don't know which the answer, which which one of those answers is correct, um, but certainly we do notice that those people who did require a little bit more help are requiring less and less help. Yeah, and and having been on the receiving end of your uh, Socratic questioning, Rob, it can be quite intense, but it's effective. Let's move on to a, an issue that's kind of nested in the this question about kind of people coming back from the emergency department, which is that this issue of kind of appropriate examinations. Now, I think I'm I'm right in saying and, and not if if you agree or shake your head if you disagree that kind of MRI is the gold standard and, and we want to see that, but that there's this. Um, muddy waters, to use your phrase, Rob, from your presentation around um, the objective examination. So things like sensory testing of the saddle area uh, and the rectal exam as well. And I, I wonder, maybe Michelle, if you could tell us a little bit about to what extent that is necessary and how it affects our reasoning as as clinicians. Yeah, I think. I think as, as you become more of a senior clinician, you make a lot of your diagnosis on your subjective examination. And I don't think that's specific to the spine. I think that's most joints. At the, by the end of your history, you've kind of decided where you're going and your, your objective examination is to confirm what you're already thinking. Um, so I do think that 90% of people I image in ED have probably made my decision by the end of the subjective um, and I'm just confirming that with with what I do, because if what they're telling me is that they don't have sensation when they wipe themselves, and that's a new thing that they've never had before, or you know they've had it for a couple of days and they're worried and they've got back pain, they've got severe ridiculous pain, um, I'm going to image that patient no matter what my objective examination shows. Um, so I think it's it's key that we do a really good history. And like I say, I think I don't think that's specific to the spine. There is absolutely um, a lot of discussion, shall we say, around um, saddle anaesthesia and um, digital rectal examination. And the National Back Pain Clinical Network framework suggests that perhaps uh, digital rectal examination isn't necessary in primary care. Um, there's a fair bit of evidence to suggest that it, it, it doesn't make it's not necessarily a good predictive indicator of quadriguana syndrome. Um, there's a question as to, is that because it's a late sign? I don't know the answer to that, but when you look at, certainly um, we did a, a paper looking at, um, Todd did a paper looking at the, they called it the quarter scale and looked at the uh, certain clinical features and, and you score high if you've got no, no anal tone. Um, and when we looked at our patients, actually, they, they didn't meet that scale. And that's because I think a lot of them do have normal anal tone. Now, is that because we're getting them early? I would hope so, because your outcomes are good if you're getting them early. Um, is it going to change your decision to refer? I don't think it is. If that's then going to get repeated when they go and see someone else, is that fair or ethical to that patient to put them through an invasive examination that then gets repeated elsewhere? Possibly not. Um, certainly one of my surgeons does all his own PR. So if he's on call, I won't PR the patient because I know he's going to come down and do it. 
So it's knowing your, your system. And if if that's something, you know, if, if a patient's telling me they've got a big prostate history and there could be an enlarged prostate that I'm not really, I'm doing it for tone and, and sensation. I'm not really going to be looking, at, I've not, it's not my area of expertise. So I may get a doctor to do that PR for me because I'm, I want the prostate to be examined while they're there. Um, so it's about, and I'm, I know I'm lucky, I've got, a million people I can call on an emergency department. I'm not in a clinic room on my own. I know that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's about knowing what's right for you in your service. And I think the framework suggests that actually doing a PR is probably not necessary in primary care. Um, in secondary care, absolutely, I still think it's, it's an important thing to do. Um, until appreciate there's evidence to suggest that it doesn't really change things. But at, at the minute, um, if you want to look at the outcomes post-op, you need to know what they're like before they go to theatre. And um, our the, most of the spinal surgeons, if, if we've done it, wouldn't repeat it. Um, there's just the, the odd person and that's their, their preference. Perianal sensation, on the other hand, I think is um, important. And there's quite a bit. So Laura Fanuka's paper um, last year, was it, or was it this year? I can't remember. Um, she did a systematic review looking at patients with um, confirmed quadriquina syndrome. And saddle anesthesia was the, the one thing that stood out as potentially being important. Now, nothing in that review was, yes, this is the gold standard important test. There wasn't anything that, that stood out that much, but certainly saddle anesthesia scored the highest. Um, and we've looked at a thousand patients that have come to our ED that have been scanned for possible quadriquina syndrome um, and uh, reduced perianal sensation is important. Um, now, it seems to be just as important subjectively as objectively. So then you've got a question about, about your testing and again, do you do it, do you not? Um, we certainly do chart, um, pinprick and um light touch for every patient and we do a PR unless the patient declines for whatever reason. Um, so yeah, we, we routinely do it, but is it necessary in primary care? Quite possibly not. Um, is it going to change your decision? Possibly not. Sometimes you do find patients who, when you check their perianal sensation, there is a reduced sensation they didn't know. So a patient that you're worried about that's got some signs, but when you subjectively examine them, it's not they're not true red flags or you're not worried and then when you go into objectively examine them they have reduced perianal sensation and again that would be enough for me then to to arrange imaging i think it's also knowing the the, the pathways there's some papers to suggest that you can get patchy reduced perianal sensation i know that i've had one who had unilateral and i rang the radiologist and he said no that's not a sign of quadriquina syndrome i'm not scanning them and so then, again, it's knowing your pathways. So my pathway then, I ring the spinal consultant on call, who then rings that radiologist back, and then the scan gets done. And, you know, it's, it's or I could, if I was a junior doctor, just give up and say, right, go away, they just don't want to scan you. So it's about knowing your pathways and knowing what you, what you want to do. But, um, yeah, I, I think it is an important examination. Um, I don't think DRE needs to necessarily be done in primary care, um, but I do think perianal sensory testing should be um, and I think it's setting up a system so that you can you can do that um, it's difficult with the telephone situation now but I would say to people you know when you touch around there does it feel normal does it not um, and get them to just to see what 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 it feels like um, I know that Chris um, Mercer talks about the women's health 
network, physio network. They have really good competencies for examining that area. Um, we've got a competency profile I'm happy to share with anybody who wants it that we designed to, to sort of cover ourselves when we started to do the mini D. And again, it's just, it's getting that through a governance procedure because the last thing you want is for a patient saying, oh, I went to a physio and he shoved his finger. You know, that that's not really the ideal. It's, as long as you've got a good governance procedure as to why you've introduced that test, that's fine. Um, but yeah, we're happy to share our competency profile with anybody who wants it. Rob, what's your thoughts on that from the primary care perspective, particularly the perianal sensation testing? I don't think it's unreasonable what Michelle said at all, if I'm honest. I think that the PR um, digital rectal examination, from my understanding, is maybe more prognostic than diagnostic. Um, and so I, I, I agree. I, I don't think it's necessary. I think we retain that patient's dignity as much as possible to stop duplication of unnecessary testing, as we do with everything. Um, just like you don't want them to have a straight leg raise yanked up in the air several times in someone who's got acute radicular pain or radiculopathy. The saddle sensation one's a bit different for me. I'm 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 to and fro, and I said on the on the on the talk, and I repeat that I still stand by it. I, I don't do it currently. It doesn't mean I won't do it. So if I feel like it's indicated, I'll definitely do it. From a competency point of view, yet yeah, I'm happy to go through those competency checks. But as I think um, Elaine mentioned, it, it's skin at the end of the day, and so if you can check sensation somewhere, you can check it anywhere. My, my difficulty lies with this, and this is. A, it's a bit of a poor excuse, if I'm honest with you. So my difficulty lies in, for example, if I work in FCP, now I've got 20 minutes. And within that 20 minutes, I've got to make a decision that I'm sending this person to a and I've got to pick up the phone and ring the a &E department. I've got to write a letter and make sure that letter gets to the a &E department. For the sake of someone who's in rage and pain to disrobe in a, a, a dignified way behind a curtain, seek, seek consent, of course, and, and get a chaperone, if that's eaten into some valuable time for me, that essentially it's not going to stop me from sending them at they're going um and it's the same when when i'm in a clinic where i've got 30 minutes and you know maybe if it was my last patient i know it's a bit of a bit of a sort of a an extreme example but if it was my last patient and i want and i, and I was humming and harness whether they're going yes um but if it's my first patient and i've got 20 other people to see later on that day and it completely derails the the appointment it probably ain't going to change what i do with that person and i'll document as such what I will do, though, is while I'm writing the letters, I'll send them away. And I've done this several times to the to the toilet within the, the primary care centre or wherever I'm working. And I'll get them to do it themselves. And in fact, the person who recently was decompressed, that's what I did. I said, I'll ring you back in 10 minutes because it was virtual, of course. Go away and have a wipe of the bits that you think are numb or pins and needly. Go and try and have a wee. Come back and I'll ring you in 10 minutes and tell me what happened. If subjective is equally weighted to objective, and, and let's face it, they're all... They're all poorly diagnostic and so it's the best of a bad bunch then for me to do it objectively with significant time pressures and actions i have to take it's not something i'm going to jump at the opportunity to do immediately however as i say i don't do it doesn't mean i won't do it so if it's indicated and we all agree that it's part of the pathway and it's something that we need to do to demonstrate competency then we'll need to reevaluate my stance on that Okay, and, and I think just before we move on from the objective test as well, there was a similar question from Adam and Sam during your talk, Rob. And I think it's about this uh, situation where sometimes you'll ask a patient to go to the to A&E uh, and they'll come back and they've had these objective tests done. So saddle sensory testing, PR exam, uh, maybe a, bl a bladder scan as well. And then they come back and 
you still have that kind of feeling of worry because you kind of maybe are worried they haven't been worked up enough. I suppose this is maybe a question for, for Rob, especially as it came up during your talk. Uh, how might you handle that situation um, where you feel like you're not sure whether the objective t- tests done in A&E are sufficient? So uh, as always, it depends. So case case by case specific. So if somebody if somebody is within our service that um, we have shared records with with the local trust, because bearing in mind I work for Connect and therefore being on the own call system, I am privy to take phone calls across England. It's not necessarily something I therefore have shared records with everybody, um, like all GPs, for example. But if but if there's an A and E discharge letter because it's electronic and it adequately reasons why that they've discharged that patient because their clinical reasoning has led them to believe that it's not quarter requiner. And I, and then I agree that, okay, fair enough. We, we agree, but then we maybe try and get something done in primary care speed uh, with, with a higher degree of speed than we would for a routine, a routine back pain, ridiculous type presentation. Um, so if, if I think that the, the real meat and potatoes is when they get sent away and you disagree, isn't it? And that's what I think where people wanted to get into it. Um, You've you've got to have a bit of a backbone, and no pun intended. But you've, you've if you really back yourself, then you, you've got to pick up the phone and speak to somebody, not to challenge them, but to kind of say, "Look, I was really concerned. Maybe I haven't maybe I haven't expressed myself well enough in this letter. This is why I'm really concerned. What do you think?" And you may be lucky; you may get to speak to that poor doctor or, or medic who's been on site for 24 hours, or, or and, and you you just so happen to speak to the same person who saw that patient. Um, chances are you're not going to. Um, so you kind of have to rely on that person who hasn't seen the patient to go in, read the notes and go, oh, well, this is why Dr. Such and such didn't do what you what you thought. And then you would say, well, what do you think? Um, do you think it's worthwhile maybe sending the patient back down to to get another opinion? And if you're hitting a brick wall, well then, okay, maybe, maybe you've just got to go and tell on somebody bigger and badder. So you've got to pick up the phone and speak to somebody from spinal orthopedics or neurosurgery, depending on what's available at your service and go, look, I'm really, really concerned. This person's got ABC. We've had this, and I don't think it's adequate for us to confidently exclude it. What do you think we should do? And then if they say no, then they say no. But unfortunately, you've got to you've got to document that. You've got to protect yourself. As I say in the old martial arts realms, you've got to protect yourself at all times. So basically, you've got to you've got to take notes and and document who it is that has said what, and then bring the patient up and do what you can with them in primary care, or maybe maybe get the support of your GP because some people don't take the word of a physio very seriously and that that's not me with a chip on my shoulder that's just the way it is um sometimes you need that collaboration from another medic to be taken seriously and fortunately we've got several medics within the organization that if the on-call system is exhausted and we're not getting where we think we should be we pick up the phone to one of the medics and say look can you have a medic to medic discussion with this person and see what see what the outcome is mm. and does that sort of sound about right with you michelle I think it's hard, isn't it? Because um, at the end of the day, it's a it's a clinical Kodokwana syndrome is a clinical diagnosis, and if they've done if a patient's got a normal neurological examination, um, they're able to empty their bladder fully, um, and I'm including perianal sensation PR in that. Um, absolutely, that might not hit that ED's criteria for a, an urgent scan. Um, and we know that there's from the entire report that was done, a lot of A&Es don't have the access to MR scanning that GERFT want them to have. Um, so, you know, that if they've not got a scan slot at that time, then they, they, their hands may be tied and they may have somebody who does have clinical signs. And I think you've got to think about your patient as well. And, and 
the patient will lose faith in everybody involved at some point. I think Rob's right. I get patients who say, you know, they, they, they come to me, oh, the doctor said I need this. Well, and you're not a doctor. Um, okay, but actually this is, the, you know, you've, it does take time to get that patient on board. Um, in ED, we, we don't, it is quick, you know, it's quick, fast turnover. Um, but that's why I think it's really important to get your pathway sorted um, to make sure that the patient is, it's, we, what, make sure you can do what's right for that patient in that time. And I, I do think that, I think, if you know, if you're a band five physio, it's very, very different. But if, if we're doing these FCP roles and we're stepping up to different things, we need to behave the way that other people behave. You know, like a, a, a cellulitis would be a direct referral to orthopedics. You wouldn't send that to sit in ED. If they needed either antibiotics or medics, whatever your pathway is, but you would pick up the phone if a, if a doctor had somebody with certain medical conditions, that it'd be a prearranged referral to medics. It wouldn't, yes, it'd go through A&E, but it would be, um, so we've got to follow similar pathways. If we're taking on GP work, we have to act in that way. And we can't be, you know, just, just expecting other people to pick up the bits because we don't like getting our fingers dirty doing a PR. Sorry for the pun. No, absolutely. I just want to add oh, sorry, something, if you, if you don't mind, Tom. Um, one of the other things I found... Um, is that sometimes Michelle sort of triggered a memory of, of a couple of occasions where people have been um, sent away, um, but actually they've been sent away because there isn't an MRI slot at that time, but they've been invited back as an outpatient to then have an MRI 24, 36 hours later. Now, it might not be ideal, but that might just be the best of what they can offer at that local department. So it may be worthwhile um, just just seeing what's happened before you pick the phone up all guns blazing. Um, because you can end up with egg on your face, speaking from experience. Yeah, absolutely. And and I was just going to pick up as well on what Michelle said about uh, behaviour, because uh, I think that is a big part of it. And as as a someone with less experience, when I was a band five MSK clinician, there's a sort of sense that if you refer someone to see a doctor in the A and E department and they say no, then that's kind of your job's done then. Um, I think we're, um, you know, we're not used to stepping up and taking on that responsibility because there's always someone to pass it on to. Um, and it's quite a hard bit of behavior change, or it was for me at least, to start doing that. And sometimes it took someone like Rob to kind of you know, push me a little bit into doing that. And I'm just thinking as well that probably, as well as in those individual instances, being a bit more proactive, even if you are do consider yourself a junior clinician, about either setting bits of the pathway in place or at least kind of calling ahead so that you know more about it and, and, and speaking to people. But let's move on and kind of go into the, the question bag a bit more. And this was a, another common question. Aris is asking, what is your time range uh, for considering symptoms to be acute? Which I, I could maybe rephrase as saying, when is this kind of an emergency or an urgent care issue? And when does it kind of go into that place where perhaps the 24-hour period is not essential? Um, there isn't this magical cutoff point whereby if it's, you know, three weeks, six days, 23 hours, 59 minutes and 59 seconds, then you know they're still acute. And then one second later, they're, they're no longer acute and they're chronic and therefore won't be seen in ED. It, different departments have different, um, different requirements. I would suggest... Um, based on what what we would normally do is anything under three weeks. And I extended that when I heard um, Sue Greenhouse speak at uh, the NEMS conference last year. 
um, and she suggested four weeks is a is a reasonable number. I think what I'd want to know though is that four weeks of improving, four weeks of static, or four weeks of deteriorating, and then has there been any intermittent fluctuating symptoms or an acute presentation within that four weeks or an acute on chronic, if you will, um, or somebody who's had a cr- sort of chronic and inverted commas bladder symptoms with a, a new acute sexual dysfunction. It, it is it is literally, you know, multitudes of combinations of different symptoms. I think I tried to calculate on an Excel once and it was in the thousands of potential combinations that you could have. And so an arbitrary number of all right, four weeks, uh, that means you get scanned in the community. Three weeks, right, you turn left, you go to the a and department. It just doesn't quite work like that. Clinical reasoning is key. I'd agree with that. I think um, I've had patients since really with um, bladder dysfunction since having a child three years ago. Yet when they went and saw a junior clinician, they asked the question and their answer was, oh, yeah, I get a bit of dribbling or, you know, I can't quite hold it and don't get there in time. Oh, right. Straight to a and I'm not carrying on with you because you've got bladder dysfunction and you've got back pain. You've got ridiculous pain. So it's about the clinical reasoning and, and, and digging into it a little bit more, I think. Um, and I, I would agree with Rob, progressive symptoms, worsening symptoms, absolutely you need to worry because that disc could be getting bigger. There could be coming more mechanical compression. Um, static symptoms that have been there for months, possibly less of a worry. doesn't mean you're not going to scan them, absolutely, but it, it, it may be less concerning than somebody who's got new dysfunction that's, that's a problem. I try to sort of, I think I said this on the talk, so forgive me if I've repeated myself, but, and and this isn't validated in any way. This is just the way I try and think about it. So it's kind of like the Wells criteria for DVTs. Is, is there an explainable reason for the symptom that you're concerned about? And and I think I stress this on the talks that I'm not, I'm not trying to get you to explain away quarter aquina. I'm trying to get you to sit there and think in your head, ask it in three different ways try and get consistency in the answers or the information you're processing before you pull that trigger to refer them. Because it's a, it's a bloody traumatic thing to do to send someone pack into A&E. There's certain parts of the, the country we work where the local A&E department is like a two-hour drive away. You know, it's right in the middle of nowhere. Um, that, but that's the only A&E department that has an MRI scanner. So you can either send them to a district hospital with no MRI. And then I think the GERFT report said it was like 16 grand to get them transferred between hospitals. Or you can send them to the place that has the MRI scanner and then they sit there for several hours. They're not the appropriate candidate and they get sent home. So you ring them the next day, you're going to have a very tired, very grumpy individual who may very well have had cordura equina that needed scanning in the community, but now they've lost all faith and you, you're not going to get them on board. And if that person gets sent away and they are the right candidate for scanning, best of luck trying to get them to go back to A&E. And on that topic of other things that might explain symptoms, one of the questions from your talk from Steve, Rob, was are um, there commonly prescribed medications that cause CES-type symptoms that need to be taken into account? Uh, I wonder if, Michelle, do you want to mention that, uh, talk about that? I can do, yeah. Um, so I, I think, yeah, is, yes is the answer. So Jill Billington in Preston did some work looking at the um, gabapentinoids, amitriptyline, all of those can cause urinary dysfunction. Um, codeine commonly causes constipation. Um, we, I find quite a lot of patients that have been put on codeine by the GP, not been given dietary advice, not been given any senna or any laxatives. Um, so then they become constipated. And then when they become constipated, the bladder function isn't quite as good. Um, so often if you're impacted with stool, 
the um, detrusor doesn't work quite as well and the efficiency of bladder emptying can become less. So they get a bladder scan, they've got a residual, they absolutely go on to have an MR. And then when I pick them up, so I pick them up on the ward the next day, if they come in overnight or whatever, and they, when did you last open your bowels? Oh yeah, a week ago. Right, let's give you an enema. Let's, and oh, like magic, the bladder starts working again. Um, so yeah, I think there's there's a lot with medication that that can cause impacts on the bladder. And it's knowing, so when did you, when you know, when did you last open your bowels? And is is that when you urinary, from, you know, how long's the urinary symptoms been going on? Where does it where does it fit? Um, the same with the the gabapentinoids, the amitriptyline. When did you start taking the drug? And when did your bladder dysfunction start? And what was that bladder dysfunction? Um, and it's looking into that in a little bit, sort of more detail, really. Um, I think just on the Rob's point earlier, uh, we listening to Elaine Miller talk about pelvic um, problems and, and pelvic dysfunction. I think it, there's there's a lot in MSK we can learn from the women's health side, and I think we automatically panic and then it is or it isn't cordyquina syndrome, whatever. But then if it isn't, and you that patient's coming back to you well, what is causing their bladder dysfunction? And do we need to get our women's health team involved? You know, it's, it's not normal to leak. It's not normal to, you know, do, do we need to work on that a little bit? And I think as physios, we forget that sometimes. Um, and that that's sort of on the women's health side, but then there's the, there's the prostate in men over a certain age and potentially going to the toilet in the middle of the night, that type of thing. Is that a prostate problem? Do we need to do a PSA? Is there something else going on? You know, is, does that patient need a PL with a prostate exam? Um, so it's thinking a little bit more like Rob said, it's, it's all about clinical reasoning. Maybe if I could follow up on what you're saying, something that I kicked myself for not mentioning directly in the actual talk um, in, in men, for example, but I certainly did mention it in, in, in women, is that these red flag questions are not just about cord requina, but the signposts and opportunities for people with pelvic dysfunction. So whether that be um, painful intercourse, which you think, okay, that's not cord requina, but actually that's a, it's a quality of life impacting condition that requires the benefit of somebody a lot more specialised than me. But equally in, in places like FCP, um, where you might be the first person seeing that, that individual they, they may present to you with erectile dysfunction. You've got to then try and figure out, well, is this in keeping with the back pain problem? And if you can confidently say no, well, then you've got to think, well, actually, is this, is this a psychosocially driven problem? So does this person benefit, would this person benefit from speaking to a counsellor or the GP? Is this actually a manifestation of vascular dysfunction? So is this something that fits in a, a pattern of, yes, I've got this, had it for a few years, getting worse, also got varicose veins, cold feet, pulses are poor, okay, well, this, need, this, this person needs a medic to have an opinion, but it's not an emergency. It's just something that maybe uh, could be improved. And these people don't necessarily bring it up unless asked. And so actually, this is a good opportunity to, to signpost that individual to the right service. So yeah, that, that was is just a bit of a, one of those ones where you think, I, I wanted to say that in the talk, but mm-hmm. it, it, it escaped, the, the opportunity escaped me because my case study was built around a female patient. Okay, thanks, Rob. And Lauren was asking a question. Uh, she says, documentation is key when it comes to cordyroquina Aquinas syndrome. Do you have a system in primary care for this? Uh, system in terms of electronic notes keeping system or system in terms of how I document, I suppose there's two questions there. So yes is the answer to system. So we, we use 
um, a tick box for certain conditions and then a free text box to expand upon that. Um, I personally recommend that you get used to asking questions in a particular way and also documenting answers in a particular way in every, whatever the condition may be, whether it's red flags or medical, uh, medical questions. I think repetition of that helps you reduce the risk of missing something. Um, so, so yes, I, I, I generally, for example, will document, um, Mr. Smith denies all features of cord equina and or foot drop and is aware of how to act should this manifest. I provided a patient information leaflet uh, to, to help to help with this. Now that differs if they, for example, Mr. Smith has urinary symptoms, not in keeping with cord equina, but he's got urinary symptoms. Then that documentation changes where I expand upon every single symptom. So Mr. Smith reports that he's had ongoing bladder symptoms since his prostatectomy um, this is unchanged for the last two years. Um, it has not got any worse with regards to this new onset back pain. He denies bowel symptoms, sexual dysfunction, saddle, problem, saddle sensation problems, foot drop or bilateral sciatica. And that's the same as to whether someone says ha, has been put on codeine for the back pain and they've become constipated. Mr. Smith reports that since being placed on codeine, he's become constipated. He retains the ability to bear down and push, which is finding it difficult to, to empty his bowel. He denies bladder symptoms, etc., etc., etc. And the safety net bit is something that you build on at the end as well as the they are aware of how to act should this mm. manifest, but making sure that that's not just an empty sentence that they actually do know how to act should those symptoms manifest. That kind of brings on me onto a question. Uh, Maddie asked this, and so did Stuart. I can read out the one Maddie asked. What are your thoughts on the effect of safety netting? Uh, to avoid risk, but the potential effect of this on people's anxiety, catastrophizing, and the effect of this on the pain system as a threat detection system. And I wonder if it probably goes for MRIs and things like that, and really any extra investigation, weigh, weighing up that safety netting with potentially frightening the life out of people, basically. So I've, I've had this discussion with Dermot Ferguson, uh, Chris Mercer, and Sue, and I like to try and, I like to try and, um, rationalize why I'm doing what I'm doing. So there's always a risk. Every conversation you have with somebody, there's always a risk of triggering something, whether it be fear, anxiety, catastrophization, whatever it may be. I somewhat disagree with what Elaine mentioned on the previous um, uh, webinar in that you're sending all these worried well to a and &E. I don't see that. And that may be because I choose my words carefully, but I'm not saying that that doesn't happen because they're all worried well that exist in all walks of life. And no matter the conversation that I've had, if they're going to go to a &E, they're going to go to a &E, in my opinion. So the way, the way I do it, and I, and I outlined how I ask those questions, but I also expressed that it's bloody personal information. So prime the conversation first. There's a bunch of nerves that live in your back that turn on bits and pieces from your belly button down to your toes. Each nerve has a particular job, and I've just got to ask you some really personal questions with regards to how those nerves are working. Do you mind if I do that? Yes or no? Then I go into my padder, as I call it, and I'll not repeat that because it was it was on the it was on the presentation. And at the end of that, do, do you understand why I've asked you those questions? Is there anything you'd like to ask me about that? Just bear in mind that this is a really rare problem. I'm as likely to get it as you are. It doesn't pick on anybody because of their age, their gender, their ethnicity, their medical history, which is largely true there's a there's a 
a slight lean towards the younger population for the acute onset and the stenotic type and the older population. But there isn't clear-cut demographic data that says if you are in this bracket, you are more likely by a significant rate to get corticoina. So I try and normalize it in, in that regard. Um, like I say, it, it's as likely to happen to me as it is to happen to you, and I currently don't have any back pain. And just to continue uh, on this topic of safety netting, Rob, Simon uh, is asking, or is it Simeon, sorry, was asking, uh, do you safety net all patients? Uh, yes. He says, since that starting question. <laughs> as a first contact practitioner, uh, I have noticed GPs safety netting every low back pain patient. Uh, I'm yep. wondering what you think of this. So, so yes is the answer to that. And this is, this is the debate I have, slightly more heated with Dermot than, than the rest of the people I mentioned. The, re- the reason I do this, so yes, I agree with um, what Elaine said on the webinar is that there is a medical legal component. And I do believe I've got to protect myself at all times. I've got to protect my ability to earn a living and put a roof above my head. And I know it sounds dramatic, but kids at home, got to feed them, social services recommend it. So I would say that to have that conversation and safety net them is you've already started the conversation because you're asking them the questions that you're asking them. So then why not just finish that conversation? Why not just provide them some literature? And I'll give you an example as to why. I'll give you two examples. One example I had is a, a lady I spoke to and I gave her safety net advice. And as she was leaving, a partner came back in and said, you know what you've just talked about there? I've got a couple of things that I just, do you mind if I ask you a few questions? And it's public health information. Because if you don't know how to act, you're not going to act. Just like if you've had a cough for three weeks or more, you should go and see a GP. It's unlikely to be anything sinister, but it's good to have a chat with a medic who knows about it. So I think that that's a a perfectly reasonable thing to do. The second thing is that um, there was an incident, and I'll be as vague as I can to retain anonymity, but there was an incident where um, somebody was seen in physiotherapy somewhere in the country with back pain without leg pain. No ridiculous signs no cord requiner features. However, they were questioned and they were provided safety net. They had three sessions of physio. They were getting worse. They were referred up to the intermediate care team who spoke to them. But by the time they got to the intermediate care team, they'd had five weeks of bladder symptoms. They were imaged in the community. They had cord requiner compression following a facet cyst pressing on, pressing on the cord requiner. That person despite having three separate episodes of safety net advice, chose not to go to A&E. But imagine if that, you know, one of the rationales is that they didn't have leg pain, you don't need a safety net them, they didn't have bladder or bowel symptoms, they don't have to safety net them. But imagine if that person did go to A&E, they would have been seen sooner, they would have had the appropriate management. And I think for the sake of that extra 30 seconds in your conversation, what's the harm? And that's my soapbox. I didn't get them as well. I think they come to, so I might see patients in A&E who I think you've been told what to say and you've drunk a load and not been to the toilet and you're telling me that you can't, you know, and I'm absolutely going to scan that patient. And I agree that may not help the, their catastrophizing, but actually for me to then go through that scan with them and say, well, hopefully if they haven't got codocrine syndrome and say, look, you know, you, you've got, this, this, you haven't got quadriquina syndrome. This is your scan. Let me show you the images. And actually, I might help the reduce the catastrophization that that, that patient has. Um, they may not get that. They may see a medic who just says your scan's fine, away you go. Um, but equally, they, they might feel better with that, even. Um, so I think if somebody's saying all the right things, absolutely, I'll scan them. And I, 
at the end of the day, people come to A&E with all sorts of things that that don't necessarily need to be in A&E. You know, we, we, we th- that's the way it is. And unfortunately, we, that's, that's kind of the society that we have at the minute. And um, yeah, it's just one of those things. It's an addition. On, on that point, Michelle, I hope you don't mind. I just want to run with that because that, that's a really interesting thing is that some people feel like this may coach people on how to get what they want. And, and I think to mitigate that, I'm not telling somebody, here's the, here's the leaflet, go to A&E if you get any symptoms, you'll get a scan. I'm probably going to tell them if you go to A&E, they're going to examine you down below and they're probably going to stick a finger in your backside. And if that person really goes to A&E because that's something they're happy to take, then you know they, they, warrant, they warrant examination in my opinion. Um, but, but we're not sort of selling this, oh, this is the shortcut to get a scan. And I'm not suggesting that's what you, what you said there, but it's, it's really important to be clear with your safety net advice is that you're going to go for an expert opinion and that's what you're going for. You're not going because this, this, and this. Yeah, I'd agree with that. But I think there are internet forums out there that tell people what to say and do to, to 100%, get imaging. 100%. Yeah. And, and, and I've seen them. So it's in, in term in terms of, the alternative, I'm, I'm not quite sure. So there's got to be a middle ground. I haven't found it yet. Um, but in terms of the risk versus benefit that I'm happy to take, again, this is the line in the sand I'm drawing. And until I've been convinced adequately otherwise, then I'm going to continue to do that. Um, but it doesn't mean I will never change. And we say to everyone, we, we give everybody an information sheet telling them what come back if you get X, Y, Z. Absolutely. We, we do it. So I completely agree with, with you. Rob mentioned, interestingly, a person with axial low back pain and no leg pain who had Aquinas syndrome. Um, Hadil asked an interesting question. He says, can bladder and bowel issues present themselves as the only sign of Aquinas?" Uh, without any back pain, just the bladder and bowel issues. Michelle, is is that possible? I've never seen it and I've not read about it in the literature. Um, I would suggest that absolutely you can get back pain with no leg pain. It's less common, but you can get that. I've seen um, Kona's compression that can present in funny ways um, with, with strange symptoms that, that don't quite fit and some upper motor neuron signs, some lower, some, you know, it's really interesting if you get compression at the conus. Um, but I, I think that if you have bladder dysfunction without any back pain or any radicular pain, uh, maybe it does happen, but I'm suggesting that you, your, your examination would probably go down a urology line rather than a musculoskeletal line to begin with. Can I just say, watch this space for a potential case study? Um, we're in talks to potentially write up a case study on that on that very topic. It is rare as hen's teeth, um, and it's not necessarily one of the common reasons that you would have cordial kind of compression, i.e., discogenic. Other stuff can touch that in the naught point naught 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 whatever percent chance. And again, for an anonymity perspective, somewhere in the country, I've been brought. It's been brought to my attention that someone has had cordial kind of compression from an alternative structure that manifested without back pain, without leg pain. It was sexual dysfunction. It was numbness during intercourse. Um, that was that was the key feature here. Um, they had a history of previous intermittent back pain, but at the time, the, the big thing was 
the, the, the numbness during sexual intercourse, but also the, the bladder symptoms. Um, and I'll save the diagnosis for when the case study is published. I have to say, Tom, I agree that, that perianal sensory loss or, or sensory changes would concern me more than a, than a, a, a bladder dysfunction that's, that could have an alternative diagnosis because with a urological condition, you're less likely to get numbness in that area. Um, it's, it's more likely to be a neural thing if you've got numbness. So um, that would be more concerning for me than, than simple bladder dysfunction. Yeah, and, and certainly in the absence of any rhyme or reason, and not to be too crude, but there have been several examples of people who've been comfortable enough to express uh, a trigger for why they're numb between their legs and it's usually sexual intercourse that has gone awry um and so that is more maybe a prudental neuralgia type presentation but again as with the wells criteria analogy i made before there's a there's an explainable reason as with what michelle was saying about the medication use when did you start taking that when did it happen in sort of trying to trying to create a timeline great thanks here's a question for michelle um, and this is from Jim. Uh, Jim asked, uh, if a patient is uh, complaining of quadriquinus syndrome, signs and symptoms, and radicular pain, and MRI didn't show anything, uh, would you scan further up the spine, or would you scan the pelvis? And if so, what are you thinking? What are you looking for in that case? I think it depends on how the patient presents and what symptoms they've got. Um, if there was any upper motor neuron signs, then potentially, yeah, I may scan higher up. Now, I may not do that as an emergency inpatient scan. So I might do an outpatient rest of the spine scan to, to make sure I'm not missing anything. Um, it, it, it is 100% dependent on what the patient presents with. Um, we, from ED, the quadriquina scans that we do, there's limited um, cuts on it. So it's a, it's a faster scan than a... Um, if you had an MR scan done as a, as a planned elective scan, you would get far more cuts on your axials than most emergency department scans because it's about we're checking for one thing and, and one thing only. So you might want to image in more detail as an outpatient. Um, we're dead lucky that we, our interface service is really, really good. So I can get those patients followed up in our interface service if they're local patients um, with further imaging if need be. I think um, th there's been quite a few cases where things like um, we've had transverse myelitis, we've had MS, um, you know, things with back pain, strange neurology, bladder dysfunction um, that is has a normal scan of the quadriquina that absolutely has pathology higher up. Um, so that said, I don't think every single patient needs a whole spine scan. It's about picking your patients and, and picking your sort of clinical reasoning. But the majority of times that would get done as an outpatient. So that, that's not necessarily A&E's job to do. Um, pelvic wise, the, again, I don't tend to scan the pelvis. I would get them to the interface service to have that done. Um, there are pelvic tumours and other things that can, can give you similar symptoms. So, I do think if you go in down that road, then yeah, you investigate appropriately on that following that path that you're you're on. Um, if you think yes, absolutely, there's something going on here. Um, what we do probably do more than in primary care is bloods. 
so we would um with your infections with your that type of thing um if the bloods are abnormal then I, that would change my reasoning as to whether to do an inner and outpatient scan um if i'm again thinking of a tumour, um, I would kind of come in off point a little bit here, but if I'm thinking of a tumour, if that's my clinical reasoning, then I may, if that patient has normal neurology, I may do a two-week weight tumour scan. If their bloods are abnormal and I'm thinking, actually, this is re- you know, really likely to be a tumour, I might do that as an inpatient. So it's 100% variable on, on the patient. Um, but our pathway is that the only emergency scan we do in ED is a, a quadriquina scan unless they've got, you know, trauma or MSCC or, in fact, you know, unless they've got hard neurology, um, we wouldn't necessarily scan further up and uh, from ED. That said, the spinal surgeons frequently will say, scan the rest of the spine. So if they get a tertiary referral and they've, they've not seen that patient, the neurology is all, uh, you know, abnormal, then often their answer will be to that sort of other centre um there's no no nothing found scan the rest of the spine because actually from from their perspective they can then say this isn't a spinal problem away you go and they can you know discharge that patient completely from having anything to do with them um i think surgeons don't think about the financial implications of imaging and and, and as as we do they would certainly you know I've, i've never ever asked one of the surgeons should I be scanning this? And their answer has never, ever been no. Every single, you know, if I want a scan and I discuss it with a consultant, absolutely 100% they will scan everything. Um, and as soon as you refer to them, they that's always their advice. And that's that was kind of what created my job in a way is that they wouldn't see anyone without a scan. They didn't want to scan everyone. They needed a middleman. Um, so, you know, it's kept me in a job. But, but equally, if that's the advice that you need to get, the surgeons will say scan. I think that's what's really important about having joined up communication as well, Michelle, going back to the previous point of having a good good understanding of the pathways going up into ED, but equally having communication coming back. So it's why we follow patients up with a telephone call the next day, but equally trying to access the A&E discharge letter. What did you scan? Okay, so I know you've scanned this. Well, this doesn't exclude transverse myelitis, as you say. It doesn't exclude myelopathy. It doesn't exclude several different conditions that you think could explain that bladder symptom. And so then that's when it becomes our responsibility again in, in primary care or intermediate care. So yeah, I think I think that that's perfectly reasonable to scan elsewhere. Um especially when you when you've got a suspicion that something ain't right, but it's not quite bond or enough to go down a MSCC pathway or a, an oncology pathway. Um certainly we in MSK service shouldn't be taking responsibility to identify cancer. If that's what you think's going on, then you need to access the appropriate pathways as you would with a quarter equina. Uh, presentation but if you think that there's just something gray going on here and i can access a scan for example in some places within two weeks if it's a if it's a priority or soon scan that's as quick as it's going to happen but it's not something that needs an an imminent scan so it shouldn't be ed that takes responsibility for that and i don't know how much it costs for a scan in ed but i mentioned this on on the on the presentation that it costs about 125 quid for a scan in the community it's not that much. I think you can get two MRIs for the cost of a vasectomy. So it's not that expensive by comparison. And that seems like um, a, a theme that we keep coming back to is for all, you know, all these muddy waters and there's lots of questions that, that come back to being quite difficult. Um, but it seems like 
the pathway is really the kind of the guiding light in all this. And, you know, if you're in like in a service that already has good, a good pathway and good relationships with uh, other nearby services, then that makes it easier. Um, but if you're not, it feels like um, the way that you can kind of help yourself, not just tomorrow, but next year and the year after that is to start um, developing that pathway it really seems to keep coming back to that to me. Is that, is that fair to say, or am I overgeneralizing a bit? I think that's reasonable and any opportunity to cram a Geordie saying in, but shy Ben's getting these sweets. You don't ask, you never find out. So just speak to someone. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we've covered all the questions. Um, so that is a, a good place to leave it. Uh, so it just leaves me to say thanks for your time, Rob. Um, and thanks very much, Michelle. Really appreciate you both coming on to answer those. So thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Tom. Okay. Thanks guys. Take care. Bye-bye.